This is Security Mindset. I'm your host, Jay Grant. Our second half of the interview continues with author Eric Ronigen from The Inside Out. Eric was the last person to make it out of the South Tower on 9-11. He told us of his harrowing escape from the 71st floor of the North Tower and recounted his incredible experiences. Let's rejoin Eric where we left off. He has exited the South Tower building and was looking up from outside the South Tower when it began to collapse. So, Eric, I think that your picture on the front page, as you talk about the it collapsing, uh, why did you use that? I mean, it's a very interesting picture because, like the book, I think the book really puts you inside the building. And at this point, really brings you outside of the building, literally, as the building is falling down. And that's the feeling I got. Yes. That pic, that photograph is, is special because that's Jim Usher's photograph. Jim Usher was with a, a firm that was doing this part of the security upgrade from the 93 bombing. And he and I became friends because we had to work together with what I was doing my first five years at the Port Authority. And when that, that American Airlines drove into the top of the North Tower, his offices were in the basement of the South Tower. Now, Jim had had some previous experience in one of our government's three-lettered agencies, so he was a little more aware of its surroundings or situational awareness, we call it these days, of course. And he felt something. He didn't hear it, but he felt something different. And he immediately evacuated his offices and went around his basement floor to tell everyone else to get out of the towers. Then he went up to the lobby and looked out and he saw two injured fellows, two injured gentlemen standing outside the South Tower. So he didn't even think. He just walked through the doors, going into the plaza, walked over to the first gentleman and said, let me help you. And he took him up to an aid station or someplace where he could be treated. And he was coming back for the second fella. The United Airlines drove into the South Tower. He was in the plaza. He was just going by the national colors, which to me is is very special in that photograph. The pressure from the explosion of that aircraft going into the tower slammed him into the pavement of the plaza, and he knew he was going to die. He reached inside his jacket pocket. He had a digital camera, and he just blindly pointed it skyward and snapped one photograph because, as he told me, and I have it in the book, he wanted his two daughters to know how their father died when they pried that camera out of his dead fingers. Well, in that photograph, you can see all of the steel and the shreds of glass coming down, and yet our national colors are still flying free. None of that had gotten down to that level yet to destroy any of that. Well, Jim Usher survived. He had hundreds, if not thousands, of shreds of glass in him. The doctor spent hours plucking them out. But we lost track of each other for a couple of years. But we, after 9-11, of course, we found each other. And he showed me that photograph. But he said, this is a very private photograph. I'm not showing it to anyone. But he did show it to me. Now it's time for me to put a cover on my book. I'd looked at some pretty interesting photographs and inquired as to what it would cost me to buy the rights to put it on. And everyone wanted too much money. I woke up in the middle of the night with the thought, call Jim Usher. It's been half a dozen years since we had that lunch. I hunted him down, called him up, asked him, told him what I was doing, 
asked him if I could use his photograph. He didn't even hesitate. He said yes. And he sent me the JPEG of that photograph. I got it copyrighted for him so that if anyone wants to use it, the only place you see that photograph is on the cover of my book. Wow, how fascinating. So let's go back. You talk about that little voice in your head. Whether you play golf or whatever you do, obviously you knew the World Trade Center well. So when you got out and you listened to something, but you're reportedly the last person to escape from the South Tower alive. And But tell us about that experience. Tell us about when you followed that voice. What happened? Well, it was interesting. It perhaps touches on religious beliefs, or many people say, well, there was a, we have a guardian angel watching over us. I'm sure at another time, discuss that. But uh, as I was walking through all the noise, and there was a lot of clamoring of people gawking and yelling and looking up and pointing, because both towers were fully engulfed in the tops, flame and smoke. So just at that instant, I was going to head west into the towers. I was going between the two towers to help people. That little voice said, walk east. And I had a friend that said, well, couldn't you disobey it? I said, well, ifs don't matter. There was no question that I needed to follow that voice. There was no second thinking through this. At that point, isn't the tower collapsing and there's... Not yet. No, when it said walk east, when I did that military left flank and walked a dozen paces, that's when the building collapsed. If I'd walked a dozen paces west, I'd have been between right there at the base, practically, of the towers. So that little voice was pushing me. That whole morning, I kept getting pushed further and further away from those towers because I wanted to go in to help. But that voice said, walk east. So I was at the juncture of Fulton Street. And the time the tower began to collapse, the panic, the stampede of thousands of people. And my gosh, Jay, what an experience that was. For some reason, I knew you never wanted to get caught up in a panic. So what I did, I matched my pace to the pace of the panicking crowd, worked my way to the right of the crowd, which was south, and tucked myself behind one of the columns of the Millennium Hotel loading docks so that all those people could just flood by me. Women's high heel shoes and men's loafers were flying in the air, and uh, they were stepping on shreds of glass and steel, and now their feet are leaving blood spots all over the place. After the panic mostly passed, I stepped out to head back to the towers. And guess what I heard? That little voice said, walk east. I turned and I walked east. And as I'm walking east, actually, at the same time that voice said, walk east, I looked up and here was that 800 foot high pyroclastic light cloud barreling down coming into the canyon of Fulton Street. And I said, oh my gosh, I don't think I can survive another one of these incidences. But I turned and I walked. I refused to run because you can get caught up in the panic, but I can walk pretty fast. And I kept an eye on it, and just before the cloud hit, I took a big, deep breath. And all of the screaming at that instant, it was total, absolute silence, like being the only person in the middle of the Sahara Desert. It was black, it was quiet, and all I could feel was the pressure of the cloud pushing me and the grit in that cloud just going over every part of my body that was exposed. and. I walked east in pitch darkness. I could only go as far as I could go before I had to breathe. And it wasn't a mistake, but you know how it is when you have to breathe. You inhale. And that cloud was so thick, I inhaled all of that grit of pulverized concrete and sheetrock and whatnot. 
in there and my throat was clogged. My nasal passages were totally clogged. My ears were blocked and my eyes were frozen over. And so I thought, well, here we go. My time is almost up, but I kept walking east. When I walked as far as I could in that pitch darkness, my knees began to collapse. And I thought, okay, it's time to go. I'm going to leave on some unknown street in lower Manhattan. And there it was. And as my knees are beginning to buckle, just off to my right, and it turns out it was only a foot and a half away. It was a little fuzzy movement. It was different than the rest of the cloud moving. So I just willed myself to stand up, took a step towards that fuzzy movement, and it was a man opening the back door of a delicatessen. So I followed him in. The air was clean. We couldn't breathe, but the staff was passing out liquids. I took a bottle, I took two swallows, and I could breathe again. So I ingested an awful lot of that cloud. We'll be right back after this message. Hello, this is Jay Grant. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. The Marone 911 Center is truly working to make the world a safer place. We would like to invite authorities and government jurisdictions to take advantage of the 911 Center grant program that we have with the Atlas One Essential Notification Plan. It provides a trusted notification system you control to push out messaging from operational to crisis events to the individuals in your community. Notifications can be made jurisdiction-wide down to a small geofenced area. Join authorities like Charlotte, North Carolina, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Austin, Texas, and more. This offer is made worldwide, and it's absolutely free. So go to atlas.one, that's atlas.one on the internet, and review the program and scroll down to the Marone 911 Center grant information. You can also find the information on our website at 911center.org. Thank you. Afterwards in the epilogue, you know, you talk about some of the personal difficulties and we also talk about how helpful it was speaking to tourists and the effects of 9-11. Can you illustrate any of that in part of your healing? Yes. For the first six months, I don't know if we did much work for the Port Authority, those of us that were in those towers that morning. Although we did, we all eventually got offices that we reported to. But we told each other's stories over and over and over and over and over and over again, just to each other and to our families. I didn't have a lot of responsibilities for the first three years after 9-11, but they kept me employed, which was nice for me. So I'd go down to the World Trade Center site every day, along with one of my colleagues, Vic Guanera, who's also a character in the book. And uh, after the cleanup and the recovery and the cleanup, a big fence was erected around the whole site. We did a lot of security surveys to sort of make work so that we could sort of justify our paychecks. But we saw tourists, thousands of tourists. And at first, I was a little reticent and shy about walking up to strangers, as was Vic. But we finally took the mental step forward and walked up to a group of tourists and said, may we answer any of your questions? And that was the beginning of what was tremendously helpful for me, Jay, in talking about it, answering tourist questions. Not questions necessarily about my experience, because I, I didn't volunteer that unless someone directly asked me that question. But just speaking about the day with strangers and answering questions and relating my experience if they asked, I thought, this is terrific. We, we're also contributing towards the goodwill of New York City. These are people from all over the world, countries I'd never heard of, have figured out how to get down to the World Trade Center to take a look at that, what happened that day. And now they've got someone. I went down there every day. I'd spent a couple of hours answering people's questions. And to me, that was just wonderfully helpful. It was therapeutic. It was very therapeutic, as was finally writing the book and getting it to press. 
Moving forward a little bit, you and I actually went to Millennium Towers. Obviously, they're working. Uh, I know I went afterwards and saw what happened. Congress actually came up and for the first time convened uh, since they left New York at the World Trade Center. And, and of course, for us, it, it was after. But it was interesting. And I didn't really think of it that day. And obviously, you went to work by what was left of the World Trade Centers, which wasn't much. So for me, it was interesting. For a lot of people who have visited New York, we understand what happened, but it was over. But for you, still saw it every day. And whether they're good memories or bad memories, you know, our, our memories stick around. So how was that for you? I think the, the talking about it with all those tourists coming down was extremely helpful. I didn't have some of the reactions that a number of our colleagues had. Some of them just couldn't deal with it. Some thought they sent people to their death. Others just refused to return to work for whatever reason. But I made a, a decision for myself almost immediately, seeing how people were reacting to this event. And my decision was that I was going to control myself, not allow the events of 9-11 to control me. I refused to succumb to emotionalism. I tried to fight through that and raise myself above that. Now, there are certain sounds that even today, for example, certain kinds of thunder or standing under a railroad trestle sound like the plane coming into the towers or the South Tower collapsing. And for some reason, that had an effect on me. And taking the train into Manhattan after 9-11, I could not stand on the train platform and let the trains go zooming by the platform. I had to back up, put my back to the trains, and hold on to the rail and just calm myself. I took a breath, let it out, tried to keep myself calm, quiet, balanced, steady. I did that every day. And after a number of years, I could face the trains coming in, and then I could step forward. I kept working at it, I kept working at it, I kept working at it. And today, and there were other incredible effects that were more difficult than that to get through, which in the epilogue, I do describe some of it. But uh, I think I've drifted from the intent of your question. Well, no, that's fine. It, you know, it's, maybe some other people might relate to it, obviously not in the same way, but a lot of people, maybe they can relate when it heights, get up to a tall building and they just have this innate fear, okay? And so maybe they can figure it. Now, again, you can't really compare the two but, but the fact is, is that maybe they can relate it that way. They can. And many of the employees refused to go into a building that had an elevator. They would not work if they had to go up an elevator. Many of our colleagues, that refused to take a bus or drive over a bridge or through a tunnel. And I refused to allow that to be a part of my daily operation. I drove over bridges. I went through tunnels because if that's the case, then the enemy has won over me, over the individual. How true. So later, in another episode, we'll talk about Fred Marone, the superintendent of police and his officers. But many people, including the authority, talk about we will never forget, which obviously is very appropriate now because we are at a milestone of 20 years later, which to me is just unbelievable. For you, it must even be but even more unbelievable. What contribution do you hope that your book brings to remember this historic event? Well... It's an interesting question. I haven't given it much thought, but uh, if people that are interested in history or a segment of history, I think it gives a, a perspective of what took place with the people inside the tower 
in what they had to go through to get out. We heard so much in the first dozen years post 9-11 about what we're doing to ramp up security in the nation and protect us. And that's fine and good from a political country perspective. But to me, what's important is what is the individual? How is the individual dealing with himself or herself? Because we're the ones that have to live through whatever the experience is. And that was one day, I think, of all of our our soldiers in Afghanistan and in Iraq and Vietnam and any place that they're set to do their duty. They suit up every day, stepping out, knowing that they may not come back or come partially back. This was out of the blue. It lasted 102 minutes. And we have to live with it for the rest of our lives. But to me, it's from my perspective, our soldiers and our first responders, police and firemen and everyone that responds to not just 9-11, but they know what they're stepping into. So reading the book, I think, will give a, an interesting perspective of people go through from that day. And maybe if they can glean a little understanding of what it takes to keeping on moving forward, we can never give up trying to make right efforts to make progress. Well, Eric, I want to thank you for sharing those experiences. Even 20 years later, they just still must be right there. I just wanted to reflect a little bit beyond that day and talk a little bit about security. And uh, obviously, one of the projects uh, that we met in is that you were working on a credentialing project, which still I wonder today sometimes if they're there after 20 years. But what were the security priorities like your credentialing project that crept up that were directly related to the Port Authority, again, was beefing up after the 1993 program. They were kind of ahead of the rest of America and the world. But now we have this event. And so what became the priorities of security? Post 9-11? Yes. Shortly after 9-11, when we started finding our own offices and, and settling in, many of the Port Authorities around the country began calling up the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, I guess because that's the largest agency in the country, is by state. And we have, a, we use the term, the possessive term, even though I've been out five and a half years because it was such a wonderful part of my life. They were asking us what we were doing to secure our facilities, the airports, the bridges, the tunnels, the trains, our, our buildings. And the Port Authority had just recently stood up the Office of Emergency Management, which I was transferred into from the Inspector General's office. And I was tasked with putting together meetings of all of the tri-state agencies of their security and police forces to discuss what it is and what it, that we should be guarding and looking towards security-wise. The question was not, what kind of fencing are you putting in? And how are you improving your fences? Are you putting triple standard concertina on the top guard? No, that was not the question. The real question was, how are we securing our critical infrastructure against individuals that might prove risky or could cause damage? So I was asked to begin to put meetings together, which I did. And we had the heads of security of the Port Authority and various facilities. We had the heads of security for New Jersey Transit. We had the heads of security for Amtrak. And we had folks from Albany and folks from uh, where else? There were a lot of high-paying people in the room. For the people, though, that aren't familiar with the Port Authority of New York, obviously it's a Port Authority, but it's unlike almost any. It was established by Congress because of, uh, I believe, it was World War One. 
But basically, their police department that has jurisdiction in two states, it's a today a $9 billion plus authority. And I think part of what you're talking about, though, obviously, I think people think of the airports and the seaports, which obviously are controlled critical infrastructure. But there are so much infrastructure that they're responsible for, including the businesses like the World Trade Center, that is just open to the public. Yes. Well, it is open to the public. And of course, post-93, the bombing, uh, perimeters of security went up so that we trucks could not drive into the building. And we closed the public parking spaces underneath the towers, of course. But uh, now we have a whole new scenario of how do we protect. And it became obvious to us that people could steal an airplane, not just an airplane, but a commercial airline, the biggest in the world, steal it and fly it into a tower. That's a pretty big weapon. So I was attending all these meetings. And after about half a dozen meetings, which took over maybe three years, I was in the position to run the last meeting, and it was the last meeting because I came up with a solution and presented it to my director on how we could vet personnel to be safe and threat-free and credential them so that they could enter a critical infrastructure. And that went around. We talked to all of the agencies, and everyone signed on to all of this. And that became eventually, it took about a year and a half to bring to fruition from concept, but it it came on board. It was quite successful and it's still in operation today. So this is when you stood up the uh, personal assurance program to assure against the security assessment and actually vet people. We vetted people to the standards that we vetted contractors that required to enter any of the airports to do any kind of work. It was a uh, TSA standard. In addition to that standard, I met with our inspector general and we got together and we increased the standards so that we tightened them up. And they became almost the de facto standard that everyone wanted to use. Even TSA, as I worked with them at the beginning and the FBI, they liked the program that I had developed. They liked the standards. And the Port Authority kept pushing back, wanting me to lower the standards, even after it was operational. We had a terrific standard of vetting that uh, first the person had to prove that they were who they said they were by bringing very specific documentation. Once they passed that, then we did a background check, a rather comprehensive one, not one that the FBI would do if you wanted to get a top secret crypto or whatever. It was extensive enough to eliminate the people that may have had questionable motives for coming to work in critical infrastructure. It was widely received, and the FBI's terrorist screening center was so impressed with it. I went down to Vienna. They gave me a tour of their place, met with them and their lawyers, and they did a daily run on my entire database so that they could find people that were on any of the watch lists. I was rather pleased with how successful that program was. Yeah, well, when you think about, uh, I don't know, was it like 10,000 uh, contractors, different people that uh, need to work with the Port Authority on bridges and, again, in those public places, and so that was the way that you controlled it through that personal assurance program. Yes. And so we credentialed them and the, the, you, could, you could check to see that the credential was authentic by QR codes and barcode scans and we checked it. It was fairly well thought out, which I was rather pleased to be able to do considering my condition up to that point. And I was directly involved in the transportation workers uh, identification credential and, and helping author that. And working in Congress, it's really interesting. I find today we're working to those standards, but we have in America Global Pass. We obviously have TSA's program under Real ID. We have uh, the individual states all working to these same standards. Plus, I've traveled to many countries and they have their own standards. But I find it really interesting 20 years later, even though we're 
all really using these standards that were established under the personal assurance program. We're back to stovepipes and everybody wants their own program rather than trying to consolidate. I remember after 9-11, I not only had to get a top secret clearance from the Department of Defense, but one from uh, Custom Border Protection. And they didn't have a single database. And they finally changed that. But it'd be really interesting if we could, 20 years later, start consolidating that information. Because I think what was established by you and the Port Authority was this single standard. Yes, it was. And there was even talk about making that a national ID standard, which, of course, got a lot of pushback. And even pushback by me, because we're Americans. (laughs) But uh, to address your question earlier, to tie it into all of this, We will never forget. Well, we do. And that's normal. The emergency is over. People rise to the occasion. The emergency is over. And we settle back again. Because we all have businesses. We all have families. We get ill. We move on. We go on vacation. And then a whole new generation comes in. Well, that's the way they did it. But I've got a better way to do it. But circumstances keep repeating themselves. And politicians and politics being what it is, I can understand people wanting to run their own show. So there are dozens and dozens of stovepipes. If we all cooperated with understanding towards a single goal that would benefit everyone, that'd be terrific. But the nature of people, especially people in politics and in power, from my perspective, mind you, it isn't going to happen. But I agree with you, and we should be a part of those folks from our perspective in the security industry. We know that we need to make this better. We can certainly run security at the airports a lot better than they're being run today. Well, again, I want to thank uh, Eric O'Ronigan and uh, Ronigan. It's not Irish. It's not Irish. I'm not Irish. <laughs> <laughs> That's a middle initial O. <laughs> oh, yes, I know. Yes, that's true. It does have a period after it. I thought it would be worth saying your middle initial because uh, if someone's looking of up course. the author, but from the inside out. And for all you security and law enforcement people, whether you were part of it, or whether you were not born yet, I think you'd find this a fascinating book and I highly recommend. And Eric, once again, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and what happened on that day. For many of us that were around, September 11th, 2001 is something we're not going to forget. And and I hope that through the Moreau 9-11 Center and through your book and uh, other people's contributions, uh, we can help them remember and lessons learned. Thank you, Eric. Jay, thanks so much. This has been a real privilege. Thank you. The Security Mindset Podcast is a production of the Marone 9-11 Center. Your host is Jay Grant. Production manager is Billy Durrett. Production coordinator is Lance Lindsay. This podcast session is sponsored by Atlas One. The Marone 9-11 Center is a nonprofit 5013C organization. Contributions and sponsorships are greatly appreciated as is identifying the Marone 9-11 Center as your charity of choice on the Amazon Smile program. For additional information and more podcast productions as they become available, visit us at 911center.org slash podcast. This is Billy Durrett. We thank you for listening and your gracious support.